whether you are a cis ally or a trans person, this is about you. The work that I'm doing is not about me because I have made it to the other side now. I could very easily have just gone stealth, meaning I don't have to reveal my trans identity to anybody. I can be Clark Kent for the rest of my life and just, you know, keep doing my thing. But honestly, like, who does that help? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Jack Knoxville, founder of the Trans Empowerment Project, which is working to move the trans community out of crisis and into empowerment. Jack is an activist who has harnessed his own life story as impetus to launch a number of social and political initiatives to serve his community. Jack has an illuminating story to tell and a positive attitude about creating solutions. He was a great guest, and this episode is well worth your listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jack Knoxville with a Trans Empowerment Project. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Jack. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Jack Knoxville. I use he and they pronouns. I was the first trans guy to run for political office in the Southern United States. Also the founder and executive director of Trans Empowerment Project. What name were you born under? Uh, yeah, that's not something that I really go into. Okay. I mean, it just seemed like Knoxville, a guy named Knoxville from Knoxville, Maybe it wasn't the original, so I was kind of curious about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will tell you, I did change my name to Jack Knoxville after moving to Knoxville, Tennessee. That was uh, the place where I really was able to just kind of spread my wings a little bit and and get into my transition. And so for me, that was a place where I essentially reclaimed my power. And I wanted to be able to take Knoxville with me from that point on. I knew it wasn't going to be my forever home, but it was... uh, a big enough part of my story. I wanted to keep it with me. I mean, I think it is a kind of a great name. There's, there's something very, you know, like it's, it's almost like a stage name. I like that you were able to do that for yourself. Could you tell me a little bit about how you grew up and what kind of family? Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm actually originally from New York, but uh, I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional household with some very abusive parents. I had my father and my stepmother. And, um, yeah, I mean, my, my father was a cis white guy who was really upset at the fact that my mother was a person of color and chose to leave him. So essentially he kidnapped me and moved me to South Carolina. Um, and at that point I was really just taken, I was taken away from my childhood, taken away from any source of support familial or otherwise. And I was kept very isolated from anybody that I knew or had had been comfortable with. So I grew up in the South, um, grew up in Conway, South Carolina, which at the time felt very middle of nowhere. I was one of very few people who did not fall into the absolute white or absolute black category. And so I was just, I, I've spent my entire life being the other, the other guy, I'm the other person. You know, so, yeah. How old were you when he took you to Conway and how old were you when you left? I was two when he first kidnapped me. We did a lot of moving around. I didn't always have clarity as to why, 
we moved back and forth from New York to South Carolina so many times. I mean, I switched schools five times in the fourth grade and five times in the ninth grade. So I was just constantly in this state of change. I take it, though, at some point you left home and went to get uh, to be on your own, get an education to some degree and employment. Tell me about that. Yeah, uh, sure. So I've actually, I, I started working when I was seven. Uh, that was the first job I ever had was selling sunglasses on the, the boulevard in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, because of the way that my household was, uh, I, I mean, I would have days like I would be at school. My stepmother would pick me up and say like, okay, it's Friday. I'm going to drop you off on the boulevard. Don't come home until Monday. And Luckily, I had a, a friend whose family had a little sunglass shop on the boulevard. So they would take me in most weekends. And that was how I was able to make money to do the fun things with my friends. And so I've basically been working ever since. But the first time that I ended up on my own, I had gotten into a really bad fight with my stepmother. I mean, my house was extremely abusive. And I guess I just finally had it. So I was like 14 years old. I had just seen my mother for the first time in years. And I got back to my father's house. We were in New York at this point. And my stepmother out of nowhere was just like, oh, I'm going to South Carolina for two weeks. And when I get home, this house better be clean or I'm going to beat your ass. I don't care whose fault it is. And I was like, you're not going to touch me. She's like, what? And I was like, oh my God, what did I just say? And she's like, what'd you say to me? And I was like, you heard me. And I'm like, oh my God, shut up. Like, I was so nervous, you know, obviously terrified because of just the level of abuse that I dealt with in my house. And that lady pushed me into a stove and I felt, I felt the flame. We had a gas stove. I felt the flame hit my hand and I, I hit her back, blacked out woke up uh, in a different room and was like, this is crazy. I got to get out of here. So the next day I literally packed whatever was valuable or important to me, got on the school bus, went to the school nurse's office. She had witnessed some abuse in my house and had already extended an invitation that if I ever really needed her to go to her office. Uh, so I did. And by the end of the day, I was in a youth shelter. And so I spent a month there from that point on, I really just bounced around uh, trying to figure out where I was going, when I was getting there, how I was doing the things, and have basically been trying to figure it out ever since. You know, as a father of two, it's just very hard for me to hear that kind of beginning. When was the time, obviously you uh, are trans, What? when did that element of your selfhood come into clarity for you? Sure. I mean, I, I always knew that, you know, I mean, I'm sure people hear that all the time. Like I always knew I did. I always knew that I was a little boy when I would picture myself in the future. I only saw myself as like an old man. And so that was kind of like my reinforcement for myself I mean, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, like there really wasn't language, there wasn't support, there wasn't the understanding of what it means to be trans like there is now. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm gay, maybe I'm bi, maybe I'm, you know, and so I really tried on a lot of different identities, especially not having the understanding and education to realize like sexuality and gender are two different things. Uh, so there was there was a lot of trial and error. And it took me until probably about 27-ish, uh, I happened to see some documentary that was on Netflix about being queer. And that was my first introduction to trans men. And as they were describing what they felt and you know their identities and the, the struggles that they had dealt with, I was like, oh my God, that's me. That is, that is 100% me. And so that's when I started to really like get an idea of what was going on. The story definitely gets more interesting as I come into to realizing like all of the things that are happening around me. I so. bet. So what, how did you spend those years from 14 to 27? It's just a quick summary. Uh, homeless and struggling. <laughs> that is like the quickest summary I can give you, uh, I think. Was that seeing that documentary like an important moment for you that you started to take action? Yeah. At the, so at that time, uh, I was in a relationship that I had been in for like three years. It was a pretty serious relationship. Uh, I was 
living with this woman who had two kids, you know, we were focused on trying to have a family, uh, which was amazing for me, especially coming out of all of the things that I've just named. When we saw that documentary, I looked at her and I said, you know, this is, this is me. This is how I am. This is how I feel. And she looked at me and was like, well, I'm a lesbian. So if this is who you are, we can't be together. And so I really kind of shut down that part of myself for another, you know, two or three years because trying to make things work, honoring my commitment to this family that I was supposed to be building, the longer I sat with it, the worse it got for me of, of realizing like I cannot keep living in a body that I'm uncomfortable with under the, the guise of being this, this other person that I'm just not. We eventually split up. Once we split up, I basically just hit the road. I lived in my car for like a couple of months. I mean, I was homeless, but at the same time, like I also wasn't sure where I wanted to be, what I wanted to do, where I wanted to do it at. I was working as a DJ at the time. I put all my equipment in, in my car and just hit the road. And I just basically traveled around the Southeast, crashing with friends I hadn't seen in a while and tried to figure out what it was that I needed to do, what my next steps were. And then I found my way into Knoxville, Tennessee, of all places, and that would become the place where I would have the I would, I would have that, uh, I don't know if it was really an opportunity or if I would say I would have the drive to go ahead and, and move forward with my transition. You know, we were having a conversation of a number of people and I the other day about how many people we now know, mostly who have children who have come out as trans, I guess. I don't know how you state it exactly. It's, but it's a lot of people that I know. And I think they're in the generation of people I was talking to, which was a lot of them were older than me. There was a really confused sort of lack of clarity about what is going on. Like it feels to them like this is a new thing because, you know, I think that people were highly closeted when it was more difficult to do this. And also because these people are themselves cisgender, heterosexual people. Could you explain what it feels like to feel like you're in the wrong body, as you put it earlier? Yeah, I mean... I think one of one of the easiest ways for people to wrap their head around this uh, so far has been to help them realize, like, imagine yourself at puberty age, you go to sleep, you wake up one day and you're like, oh, my God, all of a sudden, you know, like you personally as as a cis male, you look down and you're like, wait a second, all of a sudden I have very large breasts. Now, all of a sudden, regardless of how you feel, what you identify as, what you think, everywhere you go, everybody's looking at you saying, hey, girl, how's it going? And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, nothing has changed. I'm still the same person I've always been. There's this this feeling of like, it's almost for me. And, and here's the thing, too, is like the trans experience is not a monolith. So my experience is going to be very different from other folks' experience. But for me personally... It was very much like a, a betrayal of my body. And as soon as that betrayal happened, I became subjected to the abuses of the world. I mean, there was no foresight, you know, like as a kid, you don't realize the the things that people are set, set up to experience. Like, for instance, women in this country, the level of sexual assault, the level of aggressions and microaggressions that happen because of somebody's gender as a young person who feels very masculine and up until this puberty point has been able to live very much an authentic existence. Then all of a sudden puberty comes in and boom, now all of a sudden you are supposed to be this other person. It's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to navigate, especially when you don't have familial support. You don't have other people to give you that guidance and give you that direction. It's so much, it's so overwhelming. Um, and at times it's, it's maddening because to watch other people have the ability to live their authentic lives, to be able to go to prom, you know, and to be able to just go on dates and, and do camping trips, and do all these fun things with each other that you 
inherently just don't feel included in, it's it's a very daunting feeling to constantly feel like for me personally, I'm always on the outside. I have never I have never found a table that I could walk up to and sit at. I've always had to build my own tables. And so it's very draining because it's like not only do you have that inner struggle of how you feel and trying to figure out and make sense of how you feel, but then you have the expectations of everybody else. And then it just kind of uh, becomes an avalanche after that. I've heard people say that they hope that girls have the leeway to be any kind of girl that they want to be, whether that's very feminine or very masculine. What's different between being a kind of a masculine girl, but still a girl and wanting to be trans? Well, that's the thing. I don't, I don't know too many people who actually want to be trans. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is like, there's no part of me that feels feminine, looks at feminine, anything. I'm not just a butch lesbian, uh, contrary to what other folks might try to label me as. And the other thing is I, I, I actually kind of want to go back to your other question because I think this is interconnected of like the newness. So one of the things that people don't typically have the understanding of is that the trans identity is not new. All of this is not new. Why folks are struggling to understand is because white supremacy has done a great job of keeping us out of the public narrative. But trans people have always existed. We existed in this country before colonizers showed up. We exist in other areas of the world. And this is just another form of existence. Like there are, there are so many variations of what our bodies can look like. And so to police somebody's identity because you have this assumption of what they have in their pants is ridiculous. And I feel like that's what happens. And especially with with conversations like this, like not not that you're doing that, but what I mean is like folks who don't understand, they have this misconception that they just know what other people are up against. You have no idea what somebody else is up against. And, you know, using my analogy earlier is like if there was even the slightest inkling in me to feel like I was female or feminine, I could not have started my transition. It wouldn't have felt right. I think that there's a, there's a huge journey that every trans person I know goes on. These are not decisions that we can just make lightly. It's not like we can just wake up and be like, eh, I think I'm going to start transitioning tomorrow. There's a lot of steps in, in between that thought of like, hey, this is who I am, and hey, this is my confirmation, like gender confirmation surgery. You can't just go to a doctor tomorrow and say like, hey, I want to change my body. Now, you can if you're cis, ironically. you know, uh, I don't know if you've seen like – there's like the story of the, the guys who had some – some dumb bet. And uh, if the guy lost, he had to go and get breast implants. Doctors had no problem giving this this guy like very large breasts. But if if that person was a trans person, then all of a sudden, no, we don't want to we don't want to allow that that mentality to exist. And so that's where there's a lot of cleanup that needs to happen is like we have to stop thinking that we know that somebody is male or female based on genitalia That has nothing to do with who you are inside. Because like, you know, if whatever you feel right now, it has nothing to do with your genitals, but that's, that's where people kind of hang their hat on what gender they're assigning to other people. And again, that comes from the assumption that you know what somebody has going on below the belt. And we don't have that knowledge. I think that society, like some people, is going through a transition on attitudes towards this. What is distressing to watch about it is on the one side, there is a lot of progressive education where people are understanding that like biologically, we're very much more complicated than yes or no, male or female. I think the young generation is much more open to and aware of the kind of spectrum of different identities and realities that people have. At the same time, we seem to be going through a lot of backlash to this where uh, the right wing in particular is using this politically as a wedge issue and and 
taking a small minority and attacking it in order to advance themselves as they see it. How do you see things on balance right now? Because when you're right in the middle of the vortex of giant changes in society like that, it's got to be trying. Oh, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> at best, it's trying. Here's the thing. What you just described is a play out of the traditional white supremacy playbook. This is what they've always done, is to police other people's existence, other people's bodies. Look at the abortion fights. We are not supposed to have control over our bodies because we are not supposed to be our own human beings. We're supposed to conform and be just another number in a squad somewhere doing whatever these folks want us to do. And so the idea of us having our freedom and being able to celebrate and, and actually have autonomy is making their eyes glaze. They don't even know what to do uh, at the thought of trans people being able to experience joy. But this is, I think, our greatest weapon, right? Is like, we don't have to stay harmed. We don't have to stay traumatized. We don't have to we don't have to look at this as like, oh my gosh, they're attacking us again. Instead, I look at it like the reason they're attacking us is because we are winning. We are winning in the sense of more people are realizing they do have that autonomy. And I'm not trying to make any decisions for anybody, whether you're cis or queer or trans or you know any number of identities is irrelevant to me. What, what matters to me is the, the heart of the person, the 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 integrity, the values, the morals of the human being. And where I feel like we're winning is that we finally have visibility and they can't stand it because for so long, they were so good at making sure that people thought we didn't exist. So that when we did realize like, oh my gosh, I might be this person that shouldn't exist. Instead of being able to grow old and live an authentic life, we would squash that part of ourselves and conform to the ideals of what gender identity looked like. And that's no longer the case. People are over it. We're tired of being oppressed. We're tired of, of having to live a life that doesn't feel like our own. And it's time for the people in this country to wake up and start owning their own autonomy, whether that's as a trans individual or a cis individual, or you know whether that's as a progressive or as a person of color or whatever or whoever you are. So that for me is what also gives me renewed energy is because I look at I look at the fights ahead of us. Look, I used to drain myself with with arguing with people on Facebook and all the all the things and during the height of the George Floyd murder and all of the things that happened during COVID, uh, it, it really got overwhelming. It got to be too much for me. And I had to step back and, and assess myself, my own behaviors and my own contributions to the negativity out there and realize that like, I'm only keeping myself drained and allowing others to drain me. So I stopped engaging with the problem and started focusing more on the solutions. And in the solutions, I find joy because in the solutions, we're not stuck in this problematic world, but instead we're all given the opportunity to thrive by all being able to exist freely. And that's what I keep my mind focused on as I continue to do my work. To me, that's a very powerful message and you know, we ought to all want for everybody to thrive, right? And to do what they need to do to, to, to feel that way. I mean, how did you, as you transitioned or after you transitioned and you, you know, I'm looking at you on the screen right now, you look male as we conceive of male. What did you find changed about how you were treated as Jack Knoxville, a male looking person? Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking that question. Cause it's a good one. Um, yeah, lots of, lots of changes. Uh, it's very interesting actually, uh, to go from being perceived as female to being recognized as male. Um, as a person of color, I started finding myself dealing with a lot more hate, a lot more aggressions, especially coming from white men, I found myself getting pulled over for the most ridiculous reasons, uh, way more than I had dealt with previously. That's something that a lot of folks don't talk about and don't realize is that especially for people of color, as we transition, our situations end up typically getting worse in terms of profiling and all that. For trans women of color, the violence gets to be even more astronomical. So 
trans men, especially white trans men, they actually transition into power. I see it quite frequently in conversations where it's like, oh my God, I just did this thing and nobody cared. Like I could be gross. And ironically, the first time that I knew that I had found acceptance, this is, this is actually kind of a funny story. I was at a yard sale in uh, Tennessee. I pull up and it's these, these two older white guys uh, standing out there and they've got you know, all kinds of like memorabilia and, and we're talking and I see that they have like this Dolly Parton thing. So I pick it up and they just start talking to me very much like I'm one of the boys. And like in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm passing <laughs> uh, because there was no like trying to be a gentleman or mind what they were saying. I mean, they were just very blunt and uh, I actually appreciated it. So, yeah. But it sounds like in a certain way, it elevated race for you. Oh, yes. Because maybe there's something more threatening about a black man than a black woman or, you know, in your case, mixed. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the amount of aggressions is, is very interesting, especially like I live in the South. Uh, and so, you know, growing up in the South uh, on and off. I would see that it's it's a very strange thing, behavior that happens. Like, even if they're bigoted, uh, there's like this Southern gentleman expectation that they're going to at least hold the door open for you at the store. If you're a woman of color, you're walking through the door, they'll hold the door open for you. It's kind of that like, bless your heart, I'll put a knife in your back kind of mentality. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but like when people say, bless your heart, watch out for your back. Uh, but you know, it's, it's very similar to that. But what I noticed was people weren't holding the door open for me anymore. In fact, they were going out of their way to make sure the door closed in my face. Uh, and just, just seeing the escalation and hearing people, uh, that previously had, had been a little bit more reserved, a little bit more soft in their, as much as you can be soft in your racism, as much as that was a thing before, all those filters came off as soon as people stopped perceiving me as female. Did there come a time when the prominence of race and gender receded a bit? Like, it sounds like this would really heighten your awareness of all of your interactions around like, how am I being perceived? How am I being treated? Why am I being treated this way? Because one of the difficult things about gender and race is that you don't know always whether to assign a particular way that someone's reacting to you to that or to something very individual. Did it ever re reduce at all and just become background or is it just very prominent to this day? Oh, I'm still waiting for that re reduction <laughs> to happen. Sorry. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, no, it's okay. Uh, I, I mean, not not really that it's okay, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I think part of the issue that I personally am up against is that when I started my transition, we're looking at like 2014. So just around the corner was the Trump administration beginning. And so the hate started to increase just around the time I started transitioning anyway, and just watching all of that unfold and, and having to deal with that. But, you know, even further than that is like, like the, the summer of during all of the riots and everything, uh, I, I watched as people I had known my whole life that I thought were okay, safe, wonderful, caring, kind, loving people basically unmasked themselves one after another. Um, and I had this awareness, awakening, whatever you want to call it, and I'm still dealing with it today is like realizing how much these people that I had trusted and believed in my life actually contributed to my oppression all along. It was such a mind-blowing moment for me of realizing like, oh, that's why all of these other things happen. So for instance, let me give you an example of this. When I was um, younger, I was, I think I was in like 10th grade. At that point, I was, you know, again, I was already dealing with the homelessness stuff, uh, bouncing around, sleeping on people's couches, things like that. I had a little club that I was a part of in school. It was a, a group that I started called the Live Poet Society. So we had this poetry group. Somebody from that poetry group stole a camera from the art department. 
So when I found out, I got the camera back and I brought it back to the school. I had a principal there that was like constantly just really like on top of me from, from the first day of school, just always up my ass. I'll never forget like the first time I ever met this lady. She's like, this is not New York. We don't have gangs here. And I remember being like, what are you talking about? Like I was so confused and I thought it was just her being a, a terrible person. But as all of the things started to fall into alignment, uh, other things became more clear to me. So to, to go in this story a little bit further. So what happened was when I tried to return the camera, she was like, oh, well, we're going to call your parents. We're going to have them come pick you up. And I said, well, good luck finding them. I haven't seen them in, in a while because I had actually come home from school one day and my house was empty uh, after, yeah, all of the things with my my dad and my stepmother. She smiles like the Cheshire cat. And she's like, oh, you're not living at home? Well, you can't go to school here if you're not living with your parents. So we're going to expel you. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm like, I watch you like try to force all of these kids who don't want to be here day in and out to stay in school. I'm like, I don't have anybody to even wake me up in the mornings and I'm here. I don't have anything less than a C and you want to kick me out? Okay. And so she told me the only way I could stay in school was if I contacted social services and got placed in their custody. I called them. They said, the only way that we will pick you up is if you commit a crime. So this lady goes out of her way and says, oh, well, we'll just press charges on you for stealing the camera. I said, tell you what, you can take this school and shove it. And I walked out the door. It didn't occur to me that that was a racially motivated moment in my life up until much later. I mean, it seems clear. It seems clear to me just by your telling that she associated gangs and race. And that was how she looked at you. But yeah. 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 But see, and, and it didn't it wasn't clear to me because I grew up in a very whitewashed environment. I was taken away from any type of identity of like being a person of color. My father was extremely prejudiced. What I've come to realize is that his attraction to my mother was a fetish. It, that's all it was. And so I was groomed in a house where everything was very whitewashed. I mean, like my stepmother, her idea of decorating the house was, was like racist iconography. She had little mammy dolls all around the house. That was the only thing in that house that looked like me, even in the slightest bit. And whenever bad things would happen, things that were racially motivated would happen, instead of anybody saying like, hey, yeah, this is what's going on. I was always told like, oh, well, that must be something you're doing. I really spent most of my life being gaslit and being made to believe like this is a you problem. The reason people are terrible is because you are a terrible person. Not realizing that that, that was coming from my father who was also exhibiting his racism. And so for most of my life, everything was just downplayed as like, I'm the problem. I'm the problem child. I'm the reason for all these things. And now that I'm an adult and growing up in this society, I'm looking at this. And I'm like, this is what I dealt with in my home life was like a microcosm of what we're dealing with in the outside world. It's like we're constantly hearing that people of color are the problem. Trans people, we're the problem. If we would conform and shut up and do what we're told and fall in line, we, there wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't have to feel so anxious and nervous about our existence if we would just toe the line, so to say. And so you know, as a kid who's in an abusive situation and, and listening to all this stuff, like you just, it doesn't add up. You're, you're just like, why is everybody mean to me? You start to believe that like, maybe it is me. Maybe I am doing something wrong. And so unfortunately, that's what I was up against. And I'll tell you, I'm also on the autism spectrum. Unfortunately, I have previously believed people when they said, I'm a good person. I wanted to believe them. So I did. When you see other people being held up and regarded as these beacons of good, goodness and, and fairness and all like this principal, for instance, she was very popular, especially amongst like my white friends. And I, I didn't know why she was attacking me because I'm like, what the hell? What's the difference? Like, I'm a human being just like everybody else. So with that situation, uh, I ended up going to stay with a friend of mine whose parents were certified foster parents. I thought this was going to allow me to stay in school because I was, like I said, I was in like 10th grade. I was trying to get the hell out of there and be done. Like my third day in their house, they dropped me off at school 
And I get cornered by this principal. And she said, by the way, these people don't want you in their house anymore because they think that you're violent and dangerous and they don't trust you. And I was shattered. I can't even tell you how shattered I was overhearing this because this was somebody I had been friends with for many years. In that moment, I ended up literally homeless, like very, very homeless, living in a tree house, sleeping on the streets, just dealing with whatever I had to. It was very daunting. It was a lot to take on and consider. But what I found out, like this was what I found out just a few years ago, I reconnected with that friend who opened up to me and told me that the reason her parents kicked me out was because the principal told her parents not to trust me because I was violent and dangerous. I had no idea that she had gone behind my back and done all of that. But as a direct result of her getting into my business, being a part of this situation, I ended up sleeping on the streets for nine years, years. This wasn't days or weeks. Meanwhile, this woman is being heralded, still being heralded as this educator who is just amazing and wonderful. And if I say anything against her, then again, I I become the problem because I should let it go. She has done wonderful things for all these other kids. So, you know, my one problem shouldn't be everybody else's problem. And this is the narrative that we tell people in this country when they are experiencing actual harm. It's like, oh, well, but this is just you. It's not a big deal. Like, it's your, your fault, your problem. You're the one that needs to be quiet and you just need to sit down and let other people be. Instead of other folks showing up and saying, wow, this person did these things to you. Like you said, you're like, oh, it's very obvious to me that this was a racially motivated attack. And the thing is, like other people in my life could have, should have, and didn't identify that over the last 20 years or so. No, I think the the gentle term for what this woman did was she fucked you over. Yeah. Yes, she did. But that's the thing. And that's, that is another thing that other folks don't realize is like these moments of racism are not isolated moments, right? Like in the grand scheme of things, that was a huge moment. It seemed like in my naive and young brain, it seemed like a, a minor blip of assholeism, uh, but which. Yeah, it fit into a stream of other slights. And yeah, and, but this is just the kind of stuff that I deal with all day, every day, and so do most trans people of color. People of color deal with this all the time, but then it gets even worse. The more marginal lines you fall in, the worse that stuff gets. And as a disabled, multiracial trans person, I can tell you, I, it gets a hell of a lot worse. So what I'm working to square in my mind about you is there's this fairly traumatic first 27 plus years. And then there's this uh, thing that you've done, which is to start something called the Trans Empowerment Project, where you've talked about, uh, you know, reclaiming the joy in your self and, and trying to do that for other people as well. Could you tell me the roots to that? And how does that get going? And where does that come from? Sure. So uh, when I was, as I mentioned, I kind of hit the road and and was living out of my van trying to figure out where I wanted to be and all the other things around my transition. Um, I met somebody online. We had a date in Knoxville. I was staying in Asheville, North Carolina at the time. She invited me to uh, go to a roller derby game and to go hang out at this party afterwards. I went and had the best time. I found like the most purple spot in this red ass state. And I was surrounded by all these amazing roller derby people and everybody's tattooed and has piercings. I'm like, yes, my, 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 my people. Uh, and so I felt so much support, um, immediately from this group of people that I landed in at the party with. And I happened to have some friends that were also living in Knoxville and they were like, Hey, you know, uh, I, I started coming into town a couple of times. They were like, seems like you really like it here. If you want to, you know, come crash with us, get a feel for what you want to do. And I was like, sure, let's figure this out. So I did the Knoxville thing. I had some experience with like tech and all this stuff. I had had many start and stops for having my own companies and did freelance work and all this other stuff. I got a job through this company that's a a for-profit company, very similar to Home Shopping Network that focuses on jewelry and gemstones without totally giving away their identity, although maybe I should. This was the first time in my adult life that I had access to 
health insurance. And I got really excited at the idea that I could finally transition at 35 years old. I started exploring my options for transitioning. This company, just before I got got accepted for HRT, decided to fire me for transitioning. I made this company a half a million dollars in one week through an email that I created for them. And within a couple of months, I lost my job because of who I am. As my insurance was about to expire, you know, you have like 30 days from when you get fired to when your insurance expires. I'm like scrambling, trying to find somebody somewhere in East Tennessee to see me so I could at least get the ball rolling on HRT, um, hormone replacement therapy, if anybody is not sure what HRT is. I would call all these places. And I'm like, hey, uh, I wanted to see if I could make an appointment to be seen. And they're like, sure, what do you need to be seen for? I'm like, well, I'm a trans guy. Almost every single instance, the next line out of their mouths, oh, you know what, sweetheart? I'm so sorry. We're actually not taking new patients. So I got into a habit. I'm like, oh, well, cool. Well, thank you so much for telling me up front you're a bigot so I don't waste my time or money with you. And I was fuming. I was so mad. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like a carrot being dangled in front of my face, like authentic life or continue to stay oppressed. And at this point, I I wasn't interested in continuing my oppression. I went online. I did some Google searches. I found the Planned Parenthood in Asheville, North Carolina. It was not the most uh, technically beautiful website, but the, the language that they used on their website was one of the most beautiful websites I had ever seen. It was so welcoming and so just the door was wide open. They said, you know, if you are in North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, and you need HRT care, come see us. We will help you. Of course, I'm like sold. Let me do this. It was a 110 mile drive. It cost me $165 out of pocket especially because by the time I found them, my insurance had lapsed. We're talking the very beginning of the, the gig economy. So Uber was just starting to be a thing. That was the closest I had to a job was I, I started driving for Uber. And so that $165 price tag, I mean, you could have, you, you might as well have told me that was $200,000 right there because it felt like it was going to take forever to get to. But I finally got what I needed. I made the drive, went to Planned Parenthood, and for the first time in my life felt seen as a whole human being. I was living in Knoxville. Uh, so one of the things that was also going on in Tennessee at the time was they had this, uh, this law where you had to go through mental health counseling for a year before you could be prescribed hormones. And what was happening to the folks in that community in Tennessee was they would open themselves up and do therapy for a year only to have their therapist most oftentimes say, by the way, you know, I'm not giving you this letter, right? So they'd have to start all over with a whole new therapist, a whole nother year of therapy with the hopes that they might actually get their letter. When I did the North Carolina thing, I was able to bypass that year of waiting requirement. So within five days of me walking through the door there and actually talking to them and them getting to know me, like I had a prescription for testosterone. And what was amazing to me was that my body, like I've always dealt with PTSD, depression, things like that. Taking testosterone was for me like somebody giving me an antidepressant. It helped my mental health tremendously. It helped me to focus more, helped me to be more functional. It helped me to sleep better. I mean, it just helped all the way around. So I did that trip to North Carolina, went back to Knoxville. Uh, a, a little bit after that, I saw marriage equality passed. So at this point, there was a couple that was from Knoxville who sued for the right to marry. And so there was a great big rally that was being held downtown. I had heard wonderful things about our mayor and you know just the community itself, but I hadn't been there long enough to really experience it for myself. So I was excited to go down and connect with all these folks. So I go to this rally. There's like 4,000 people there. And uh, the mayor gets up. She talks, does her thing. She gets off stage. Everybody's like talking to her. Um, and I got my chance. And I said, hey, you know, I know you're really busy right now, but I would love to talk to you about trans rights, especially in this area. All I wanted from this lady was a business card. That's it. Instead, I got blown off. She pointed at a crowd of 4,000 predominantly white people and said, oh, sure, you can talk to my assistant, Matt. I'm like, yeah, let me get right on top of that. I said, hey, by the way, my name is Jack Knoxville. Have you ever heard of me? She said, no. I said, well, you will. I had no idea what that meant. I just knew I was pissed. 
<laughs> yeah. So a couple of weeks later, I was doing the Uber thing. I started doing Grubhub, Lyft was all, all that stuff was starting up. So, you know, I jumped in and was doing all that stuff, was slinging my artwork, doing marketing campaigns, anything I could do, just doing my hustle, trying to make some money. Um, and I happened to see this little article pops up online from a publication that's now defunct called the Metro Pulse. And it's talking about how this mayor is running unopposed and they're basically calling it because it's 3.30 on a Friday afternoon. And I said, the hell she is. I shut my laptop and I went down to the courthouse. I ran around downtown Knoxville like a maniac and got anybody and everybody who had listened to me to sign my damn petition. And I, I became a write-in candidate. I had it all turned in by five o'clock. At that time, trans people still were not getting nearly the amount of support and things that we are now, uh, even though that was not that long ago. And I immediately found myself thrust into this like hate campaign. And I mean, I was just being dragged from both sides, all the way around. I didn't want to be mayor of Knoxville. I just wanted to make a point. And I also wanted to get people talking about trans issues. Because like I said, I mean, I couldn't find a single care provider anywhere. So after I ran for office, I had picked up a job as a brand ambassador for Metro PCS, which meant I was sign spinning, I was canvassing, knocking doors. So this is all before my formal nonprofit experience, by the way. So I'm getting all of this great organizing experience, not knowing that's what I'm doing. And they said, oh, you're running for mayor? You can absolutely talk about that while you go knock these doors. So I'm like, cool, I get paid to knock doors for my own campaign? Sweet. So that's basically what I did. I I only raised like $90, by the way, which I used to get stickers of my face printed out and plastered them all over Knoxville. As a write-in candidate with zero experience, I got 3% of the vote. But even <laughs> better than that was I built a lot of great relationships. I met a lot of really cool trans and non-binary folks and support for the community. And one thing that was very obvious to me was we had this very similar thread of consciousness of like dysphoria, depression, isolation. And as I'm looking at all these folks, I'm like, y'all, we are rock stars. Why the hell do we need other people to validate us? Like we should be empowering each other. And so that was really where Trans Empowerment Project as a concept came up and came out of. I really didn't know where to start. I had no idea what I was doing in terms of starting a nonprofit or anything like that. So I literally just went for the first thing that was obvious, which was we all needed gender affirming clothing. And most of us couldn't afford it, especially because of the lack of access to affirming jobs and things like that. So that was the first thing we did. I organized a clothing swap. I rented out this little community spot, which is amazing in Knoxville called the Birdhouse. They were great because I thought I was renting it out. They gave it to me for free. So thank you, Birdhouse. But they, they gave me the space to use for free. And we ended up giving away free clothing to over 100 trans and non-binary folks in East Tennessee. That was the first time anybody had really pulled this community together. And the turnout was just amazing. We've definitely gone through lots of ups and downs, but we have not continued. We have not stopped growing yet. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about it as an organization. What is it up to now? Who works there? You know, what are the basics? Sure. So we, um, you know, as I said, we started as a local initiative in Knoxville. At this point, we are one of the largest providers of direct aid for the trans community in the entire country. Inevitably, that also makes us one of the largest providers internationally. We do have an international following, but we do most of our business here in the U.S. At this point, we have our direct aid program, which provides emergency food, emergency clothing packages. Sometimes we are able to help with the HRT Hopefully we can get that going again soon. But we have a lot of different projects and programs really aimed at building our own systems of support because the systems around us right now are not set up to support us. To one of your earlier points, like there's so much happening around us right now. There's so much that needs to be rebuilt and we are focused on building from the ground up. We're, we're focused on building the future that we want to see rather than staying stuck in that problematic past. And that's what it's about. It's about being solutions oriented. It's about helping our allies to understand the harm and the things that we are subjected to without forcing trans people to relive and stay stuck in that harm and trauma. So giving our, 
our community spaces where we can celebrate ourselves, where we can thrive. Like we have a discord so that we can monitor that. We don't have to worry about so many trolls and things like that. We do a lot of really cool and fun projects. Not everything can be fun, but we try to make it as as fun, friendly, engaging as possible. So recently we did a project over the last year where we created and distributed 500 self-defense kits that went to people across the country. Majority of those folks came from Texas after Governor Abbott started his attacks on trans youth. We put out a, a message on social media and just offered these kits to anybody who felt unsafe really was not anticipating the response. That post was shared 8,000 times. And by the end of like just a couple of days, we had almost 400 requests for safety kits. We go into a lot of different spaces. We do a lot of things. Like one of the one of the other projects we're working on is we're trying to help employers learn how to be more affirming employers rather than just lifting up jobs that already exist for trans people. We want to create more spaces for trans people to be able to exist in and thrive in. That is a trans employment project. Then we have Project Care, which focuses on helping medical providers to understand the difference between providing services and providing care. And then we have an organizing program, which right now we're working on a really fun project that's meant to help get everybody active in democracy, which is called Drag Me to the Polls. Lots of stuff going on. Oh, we also have an inmate advocacy project. Um, that That is one program that um, I feel is so important for the work that we're doing. We, we try to make sure that our incarcerated folks get commissary funds about five times a year. They get it for Trans Day Visibility, Trans Week of Awareness, their birthdays, Pride, and then also during the holidays. We have a pen pal program to help these folks make sure that they understand they're not alone. We also make sure that they get gender affirming undergarments and things like that delivered to them. So lots of projects, lots of programs, lots of space for anybody who wants to be a part of this change and the work moving forward. Tell me more about Drag Me to the Polls. Yeah, so Drag Me to the Polls really came about one, from my experience with doing organizing now over the last few years, but mostly because of in response to the Supreme Court rolling back Roe v. Wade. One thing I saw time and time again, and it was really kind of scary and alarming for me, was the number of folks, especially who are queer or in the LGBTQIA community, on their social medias disavowing democracy. Like, I'm never voting again. Screw these Democrats. Screw this person. Screw that. I'm like, that disenfranchisement is absolutely by design, and we cannot give up our power that easily. Like These folks would not be spending the money and the time and the energy that they are to keep us from voting if it wasn't important. And so for me, that along with hearing that you know one in five members of the LGBTQIA community is registered to vote, and even less than that, make it to the polls, that's a problem. We've got to do better. And for me personally, like I've I've felt a lot of frustration with this system uh, because, you know, all the marginal lines, I don't typically find myself being represented or feeling like I'm even a part of this system. So I understand that feeling of like, eh, forget it. What the hell is the point? But that's exactly the point. The point is that we need to show up to the polls. We need to make as much noise as possible. And so this is a fun way that we can do that. We're challenging folks across the country to join us in holding voter registration drives because we want to make sure that everybody's voice gets heard in democracy because that's the only way democracy actually works is when we all get heard. And then the, the other part that that makes it a little bit more fun is we're encouraging our organizers to have these really fun after parties. We want to have coming out parties to celebrate first time voters coming out to the polls and, and casting their ballots for the first time. And we are asking other folks to show up and function as DDs, like designated drivers, but they're drivers to the polls. We are also looking for people to be ballot buddies. So that's somebody who's going to make sure that other folks are making it safely to the polls to be able to cast their votes. And so it's just a way that we can be safer together. We can participate in democracy without the fear of really most of the things that we we typically fear as a, as a community. And also we're working with vote.org to make sure that we have all of the documentation needs and everything laid out for folks ahead of time so that there's no surprises when they do show up at the polls and they want to cast their ballot. So I know that you have a day job. 
that you work for Sierra Club, right? Doing digital organizing. Could you just tell me a little bit about that? And then what does it mean to you to have this trans empowerment work on the side of that? And how does that fit together for you? Well, my big fancy title at Sierra Club is I am the Distributed Organizing Technology and Digital Communities Manager, which means that I manage a whole bunch of digital tools to help organizers in the environmental justice sphere be able to do their work and launch their campaigns. And Jack, since I'm, I come out of the world of political tech, could you tell me what tools those actually are because I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a proprietary piece of technology that Sierra Club owns called AddUp, which is an amazing platform. It's actually Action Kit. Action Kit was built off of the blueprints of AddUp. So AddUp is a really cool piece of tech. Uh, that's actually how I got into the organization was that that tool is amazing. You can do distributed campaign. You can do all kinds of stuff on that tool. Uh, that was built for Sierra Club by Sierra Club kind of thing. Then on top of it, we do mobilize uh, and we have um, mobilize out of hustle. And then I'm also the admin of our volunteer Slack space where there's uh, just under 6,500 or so folks currently. So basically my role is to one, provide digital strategy to organizers to help make sure that they can win their campaigns. It's also to make sure that they are trained up on the tools and that they know how to use those tools effectively. Uh, but even beyond that, the distributed organizing piece of that is, I'm going to say I'm, I've been given the opportunity to, to do a reset on all of these tools to make sure that the power for the tools is in the hands of those on the ground, the people in the field that are doing the work, rather than it being a hierarchical model, which we're used to having. So that's, that's where I have fun is because I like building new systems and, and stuff like that. And I love building power for people on the ground. And so that's where the overlap is for me. And ultimately, my work is the same. No matter which hat I'm wearing, it's all about making sure that the people who need power have it. What I love about Sierra Club is they are so great about giving me the time and space that I need so that I can continue to do TEP work. And with Trans Empowerment Project, as the executive director, I have a lot of flexibility there. So really for me, there's there's just so much overlap. And I feel like that's that's a lot of what I do is I really try to help others in Sierra Club, at Trans Empowerment Project, even through partners. Um, I really try to help them focus on and understand the amount of interconnectedness that all of these issues have and helping folks to get aligned on the targets. One thing that the right has done extremely well is gotten us to exist in silos and to think that our fights are separate fights. They are not. They are all the same damn fight. At the end of the day, we should all be working to get rid of white supremacy in this country and beyond. That's the work that I feel like I get to do and that I feel called to do. Well, I think there is just a extraordinary change that you've brought about in your life from that time in your teens and 20s and before where things were not going well and where you were really in some shitty situations to now employed at a, an international nonprofit working on environmental stuff and having a meaningful project on the side that, that's helping people that you care about. And you know, I think that's gotta be inspiring to anybody. Where do you hope to go from here? Um, I'll tell you, my, my sites are set on senior care for trans people. Um, traditionally, that's not something that trans people have thought of, really, because we're not expected to make it there. Uh, but we are going to make it there, and we're going to make sure that we get to age out of here gracefully. So definitely something that I'm interested in. Uh, and then there, there's so much more, so, so much more on the horizon. I feel it constantly. And the more that I make connections with other folks and hear about the great work they're doing, the more inspiration I also get and the more opportunities I see for ways that we as a community can grow, both as, as trans people and then just as people in a more progressive space. We have, we have a whole ass future to build together. And so the possibilities, I really see the possibilities as being endless. And it's a matter of, you know, you want to pick up a paintbrush, you want to pick up a hammer, a screwdriver, which tool feels right for you. And whichever one it is, like that's where 
where we need to go. I like all of it. So I like the fun stuff. I like the the artistic and the creative. There's a few videos that I have in mind that I want to start working on production of. We have a lot of growth with Trans Empowerment Project. We're looking at expanding into a C4 and launching Trans Action Project to be that complement. We've also been looking at launching PACs in the future. And by future, I mean like before 2024. Yeah, there's, there's so much work that needs to be done still. Do you have anything you'd like to say or would be willing to say to people who are mired in some version of the difficulties that you had along the way that are feeling hopeless or feeling oppressed or being oppressed about like the the hope that there is for them and what it takes to pull yourself out and and have others lend a hand in doing so. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I'm going to preempt this with a a little bit of a trigger warning because I'm going to talk about mental health real quick. As somebody who has dealt with, I mean, the bottom of the barrel of humanity and has dealt with a lot of their own mental health issues, there were many, many years of my life that I didn't think it was going to get better, that I really questioned whether I should even see the next day, many days that I would do everything in my power to not see the next day and then wake up madder than hell that I was dealing with yet another day. I can honestly say, if you take the time to invest in yourself, and that doesn't necessarily mean financially, but like energetically or otherwise, if you take the time to really invest in yourself, to reach out to whatever resources exist, whether those are resources you're comfortable with or uncomfortable with or whatever, it can get better. If you want it to get better, it can get better, regardless of where you're at. And at the risk of sounding ableist uh, in that, I, I will say that like the work that I'm doing, the work that my staff, which by the way, we have 10, we have 10 paid staff members right now, which is mind blowing. But the work that my staff and I are doing is really meant to make sure that nobody else has to face another day on this planet completely by themselves again. Whether you are a cis ally or a trans person, this is about you. The work that I'm doing is not about me because I have made it to the other side now. I could very easily have just gone stealth, meaning I don't have to reveal my trans identity to anybody. I can be Clark Kent for the rest of my life and just, you know, keep doing my thing. But honestly, like, Who does that help? If I stay quiet and I stop doing my work, all of the people that are in the inbox waiting for help, they don't get help anymore. And for me, this is a very personal thing, but nobody has to take on any level of work. They don't have to be anything that anybody else expects of them. Just become who you are, who your authentic self is. And and honestly, I'll tell you, that sentence right there, become who you are, That has been something that has been stuck in my head since I first landed on the streets. And actually, that is the name of a Juliana Hatfield CD. That's a fun fact for you. A Juliana Hatfield CD that I kept in my backpack during my homeless days. And I would look at that title. There was something about that title that really just resonated with me. But that's the advice that I have for everybody is become who you are, not who others expect you to be, not who you think others are expecting you to be, but become who you are and find your joy because you are allowed to have joy. You're allowed, if people need to hear that, which by the way, some folks do need to hear that they have that permission. I want them to know that like, they absolutely have the right and should expect to be able to thrive. And if you're not feeling that way because you don't have support around you, reach out. There are organizations, not just Trans Empowerment Project, but there are organizations all across this country that are looking for help that's a great place to find camaraderie, find some folks with like-minded ideals who will treat you properly and respectfully, but don't stay stuck. Please don't stay stuck. I promise it will get better. You just have to keep going. And sometimes you're going to go further than you, than you think that you're capable of, but at the end of it, you got this. And if not, hit me up. Let's talk. Well, I think you've come to some wisdom and I appreciate you taking the time to deliver a little bit of it. Anything else you want to say? 
Yeah, I just want to say thank you really for you for having me on the show and for anybody who has taken the time to listen to this. It's so important. It's so important if you want to see the change out here, if you really have this authentic interest in things getting better, then we have to get off of this hamster wheel that we're on. The amount of harm that we're just lifting up to each other, we can do better than that. We need to start lifting up positive experiences and stories, making space for people to actually have positive experiences. For anybody who wants to be an ally to the trans community and they're not sure where to start, that's where you can start. Start by looking for trans creators, artists, authors, musicians. There are some amazing trans musicians out there, by the way. There are a lot of creative and wonderful trans people out here doing some amazing work. Look for them, follow them, listen to them. Don't interject your opinions on other people's identities. And then when you find people that you vibe with, find people that you're like, hey, this person makes sense, or this is this is a good person. Share that content creator. Share that person on your social media. Give them the visibility and space that they need, because that is one of the biggest things that this community lacks is visibility. And I think that we can get to change by creating more visibility, by sharing more actual stories of experience, and by really building those relationships and becoming the community that we claim to be in this country. Jack, thanks very much. That was Jack Knoxville. He is at transempowerment.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.